So glad you're here today. Happy spring. And uh, all right, let's get to work. Ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray together. Father, we come today, been apart for a week, and we need to be reminded of truths that we hold dear. Um, we need to be uh, reinvigorated for the hope that is in the gospel that we might be able to share it when opportunities come. So would you give us grace today to receive your word and then to be motivated to walk through the open doors that you give us. Lord, I pray for some here today as we talk about the gospel who need to come to the gospel, need to come to a personal relationship with you, Jesus. I pray that today it would just be so clear, so evident, so compelling that they would, on this very day, put their faith and belief in you. So help us, Lord. We need to hear from you. And we ask you to use your word to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been asking you to pray a strategic and a bit of a bold prayer during this uh, four-part series on the subject of the resurrected gospel. That prayer goes something like this, Lord, would you open a door, would you open my mouth, and would you open their heart? This is a bit of a risky prayer to pray, saying, God, we're asking for you to create an opportunity. When that opportunity comes, we want to walk through it. And walking through it, we want you to give us the words to say and the right demeanor with which we need to share them. This is a part of what it means to be involved in God's mission in his activity in the world. This is why God has placed us on the earth. It is to be a part of his mission to accomplish his aims. There are doors that God may open for you, and when they do, I would encourage you to walk through them. One of our pastors had a great open-door opportunity this week. Um, a staff member's mother was dying, and for years the staff member had prayed that God would open her heart to the gospel, and that had never come. And um, because of cancer and because of a declining health situation, one of our pastors went there to visit with her and just walked through the open door, shared the gospel with her, and I got an email this week that um, this dying mother of a staff member prayed to receive Christ in the hospital room. She prayed for the first time, Lord Jesus, forgive me of what I've done. And we're believing in faith that that was a prayer that uh, God answered and that today she is in heaven having her sins forgiven, even at the last moment of her life. And after all, it was the thief on the cross who was saved at the very last moment. So the, the, the mission that we're involved in, friends, is urgent. It's real. Heaven and hell are on the line all the time, and God invites us to be a part of what he's doing on the earth. And so if you have an opportunity that God gives you to walk through a door and you get to share a story, we'd love to know a little bit about it. We've created an email site, a little, little email address, uh, evangelismstory at yourchurch.com. we just love to be encouraged. A number of you sent stories to us this week, and man, they just help us to be uh, motivated as we lead you as a church. And um, we'd also love to be praying for you in those opportunities that God gives you. So keep praying, keep walking through those doors, keep sharing, and then let us know of what it is that God does in your life as we talk about this important subject matter of evangelism. So two weeks ago, we talked about the matter of applying the gospel. The idea was that the motivation for evangelism doesn't come from guilt. It comes rather from affection. In other words, what we love, we talk about. What we are familiar with, we share. 
And the idea was that if we apply the gospel to our lives, if we're living out the gospel in terms of what it means for us to having been forgiven of our sins, we've applied that to our lives, then we won't be able to help ourselves in terms of opportunities to share it. Then last week we looked at the idea of what it means to live the gospel, that Jesus calls us in Matthew 5 to be salt of the earth and light of the world. In other words, the reason that you are in the places that you're in, whether it's your neighborhood, your employment, in school, relationships that you have, you are here on the earth for a different reason than everyone else on the earth, and that is to be salt, to, to, to change the flavor of our culture, to bring the gospel into every arena that you're in. You're to be light of the world, meaning you're to penetrate the darkness, to be the kind of person that that people would miss if you weren't there in terms of your witness, your testimony, um, the presence of Christ that just emanates from you. So the idea is to apply the gospel, then to live the gospel, but eventually there comes a point in time when God's opened the door and it's time for us to open our mouth. And the question is, when that happens, what do you say? What are the things that you communicate? How do you share the gospel in a way that's clear, that's compelling, in a way that that makes sense, in a way that's very practical? So today we're going to walk you through what it means to sort of seize this opportunity that God gives you and how to be able to share the gospel clearly and succinctly. We're going to start in John chapter 3 in the story of Nicodemus, draw some things out of there, and then go to these five words that Dale has already talked about. So first, let's look at what we find in John chapter 3 and Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. You know, Jesus was a master at seizing opportunities to take normal, everyday conversations and turn them into spiritual conversations. Uh, For instance, at the woman at the well, he talked about a common need, their common need of water. And then before she knew it, he had turned that conversation towards spiritual things. Jesus spent time with tax collectors and sinners. He was engaging people in order to be able to talk with them about their spiritual needs. And just a sidebar on that, that means that we need to have people in our relationship sphere who are not believers, they're not followers of Jesus. If, If you look around you and all of your relationships are all Christians, you need to kind of get out of the Christian ghetto and uh, find a way to be able to connect with people who are um, not followers of Jesus, those who are spiritually searching. As well, Jesus even boldly invited himself over to someone's house, a little Zacchaeus. He was up in the tree. Remember that song maybe you learned in Sunday school? Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go to your neighbor, knock on the door, and say, God's told me I'm going to come to your house for dinner tonight. I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting, though, is that Jesus regularly used conversations with people in the various levels of seeking him or seeking spiritual needs to draw them into more spiritual conversations. So John chapter 3 records one such moment when a religious ruler named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in order to ask Jesus some questions. And what I want you to see is the way in which Jesus engaged his mind and his heart. The first thing he did was he was able to get Nicodemus thinking So the first two verses, we learn that Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's looking for answers. But what's interesting is that Nicodemus doesn't at first start out with a question. Instead, he starts out with a statement. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is making a statement, but Jesus has enough discernment to know that in this statement there are all sorts of layered questions. 
Nicodemus was seeking Jesus out, and granted, he was a religious leader. But you know what I found? I found that most people in life have a lot of unanswered questions. Questions that somewhere down in their soul they've got buried. Questions that, frankly, they want answers to. Sometimes a crisis will cause those questions to come out. Other times, just as you get to know someone and get to a deeper and deeper relationship with them, you start to find out that there are pretty deep and significant questions. And I would argue that that most people really wrestle with questions like this. What happens to a person after he or she dies? Questions like, what is the point of my life? Questions like, why do I feel guilty about the bad things that I do? And then, what do I do about that guilt that I feel? How can I be forgiven? And the point is, is that I think most people are asking these kind of questions, and so therefore I want to encourage you, even urge you, and challenge you to be the kind of person that when they really start asking those questions or start dialing into those deep spiritual questions, that you're the kind of person that they'd come and talk to. That you've built enough relationship equity, and they also know you to be a person who walks with Christ, such that when they want to know an answer to that question, that you'll be the first person on the speed dial, so to speak. The second thing here is to realize that we need to be constantly looking for ways to engage people in spiritually oriented conversations, to be reminded that we're not here on the earth just to do everything else like everyone else on the earth does them. We're here to engage people in spiritually oriented conversations, to be able to to, to talk to them, to, to get to the core issues of life. In fact, this is what Jesus does. He sees through um, Nicodemus' initial statement And he gets Nicodemus thinking by saying the following. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus makes a statement about being born again, and this statement demands a follow-up. It's a leading statement. It's meant to draw Nicodemus in. There is no way that Nicodemus is going to walk away from this conversation at this point. Jesus has grabbed his attention. He's seen behind his just initial statement, and he's drawing him in. This this term, born again, is meant to create a question in Nicodemus' mind. So he gets him thinking. Kevin Harney, in his book, Organic Outreach for Ordinary People, which is another way of saying evangelism for dummies, um, he lists five great questions that can lead to spiritual conversations. And these, these are really helpful. I love these. These are five questions that you could use. You know somebody well enough, you could ask them, hey, what are some of the joys that you're experiencing in this season of your life? What's making them happy? Secondly, what are some challenges and struggles that you're facing? Third, what is your personal history in when it comes to faith in God? We talked about, about this last week. What is your, what's your story? Fourth, what do you believe about God? And then number five, if you ask this question, fasten your theological safety belt. What is your perception of Christians, right? So what are the point of these questions? The point of these questions is to be able to draw out what is going on inside of the person's soul. Realize this, that every single person is a theologian. The question is whether or not they're a biblical one. Everybody does theology. Everybody has a view of God. Everybody has a view of themselves and of sin and of church and and how to be forgiven and and what it means to um, have a relationship with God. So the question is, how is it that you're going to get into those sorts of conversations? And the simple point is that before you can share the gospel message, you have to have some sort of level or interest or, or spiritual need on the part of the person you're talking with. And therefore, we have to get people thinking. 
So we've got to ask him questions, engage him in conversation. Then the second thing that Jesus does is he points Nicodemus to spiritual realities beyond himself. In other words, he helps Nicodemus to see that the solution is not within him. That Nicodemus can't solve this problem on his own. His statement about being born again prompted an honest question from Nicodemus about what does Jesus really mean? What do you mean born again? And Jesus' response to Nicodemus was to point him to the greatness and even the mysteriousness of God's work. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The Spirit blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what in the world is Jesus doing here? He is taking things out of Nicodemus' control. He is indicating that Nicodemus, this born-again reality, is something that God does. So he's pointing Nicodemus to spiritual realities beyond himself. As we'll talk in a moment, one of the most important things you can do in sharing sharing the gospel is to help people to realize that the real issue, the real problem, is right in the mirror. The, The problem is that we cannot do this on our own. And by the way, this distinguishes Christianity from all other religions on the planet. All other religions are work-based. you got to do, got to do, got to do, got to do. And when it comes to Christianity, the answer is you can't do it. In fact, you've done enough. <laughs> the fact of the matter is you need Jesus to do this for you. And that's the beauty of what grace is. John Piper says the following about what Jesus is saying here. He says this, What matters is not merely affirming the supernatural in Jesus, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. The new birth is supernatural, not natural. It cannot be accounted by things that are already found in the world. So, Nicodemus, Jesus says, what happens in the new birth is not merely affirming the supernatural in me, but experiencing the supernatural in yourself. You must be born again, and not in any metaphorical, natural way, but in a supernatural way. God the Holy Spirit must come upon you and bring new life into existence. Something that we need to note here, and that Jesus is essentially telling Nicodemus that there is no hope in himself. He cannot do what needs to be done on his own. He needs to be born again. So this means that we have to point people beyond themselves. And that's what Jesus does. Somewhere in people's hearts, I think they know that they need divine intervention Pointing people to spiritual realities beyond themselves means that, in effect, we tell them, look, you cannot fix this problem on your own. You need God's help. Third, Jesus calls him to believe. Look at verses 14 to 17. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, which is a really interesting thing to say because this would have been a historical Old Testament context that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. So what happens here is that Jesus talks about the coming cross in a way that Nicodemus can understand given his Old Testament religious background. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What Jesus does here is he calls Nicodemus to believe. 
Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. So this is the goal of spiritually oriented conversations. Eventually, at some point in time, we have to call people to believe. This is the essence of what Christianity really is. This is the reason why Christ died, and this is the heart of the good news, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So Jesus calls him to believe. And at the end of the day, what you're doing in a gospel presentation is you're calling people to believe. And this morning, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, what distinguishes the followers of Jesus between those who are not is that the followers of Jesus have chosen to believe in what the Bible says about themselves, about God, about the cross, about redemption, and about forgiveness. They've chosen to believe, to put their trust in, that followers of Jesus have put aside their trust in their own righteousness, or this sense that I'm not as bad as others, or this idea that I can somehow self-atone, or earn, do enough good things to earn God's favor. A, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, basically comes to the point that they say, I can't, do this, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus. So what does Jesus do with Nicodemus? He grabs his attention. He points him to spiritual realities beyond himself. He then calls him to believe. Jesus sees the opportunity for a spiritual conversation, and that's what I'm exhorting you to do, to be able to seize opportunities to turn conversations into spiritual Subjects. Be the kind of person that people, if they are curious about spiritual things, that you would be the one that they would go to. Even if you have a little nickname at office, like the Holy Roller or something like that, or, or, or a spiritual guy, or hey you're, hey, you're religious, aren't you? Just take it. Just, yes, yes, I am. What, what can I do for you? You know, so well, what, what is it? That, how can you help people? But be known as the person in your realm of influence that people would go to to talk about spiritual things. Don't be an incognito Christian. That, that, that isn't even a real concept. To be the kind of person who engages in spiritual conversations, and then when the opportunity comes, friends, you've got to make it clear. You've got to make it clear. Last week I said you've got to hit that slow fastball. Someone after first service said, Mark, it's a hanging curveball. So I got it, all right? It's a hanging curveball. You've got to hit that thing. All right, got to make the layup or whatever you want to do. So you've got to just simply put it down. That's what I'm saying. Make it clear. Make it concise. And to that end, let me try and help you. In your bulletin is a bookmark. It looks something like this. If you've got it, I want you to take it out because I want you to see it, to look at it. We're going to use this. As you heard in Dale's testimony, we're going to talk about five words as it relates to the gospel today. And I remember um, the day that Dale used these words with Shay uh, Rankin. I was um, having coffee between services with uh, a staff, former staff member at my church in uh, Holland who had come to visit. And uh, we were sitting there just enjoying a cup of coffee, catching up on what was going on and between services. And, and, and Dale came up and mugged me and mugged my friend. He was like, Mark, you're not going to believe what happened. Shared the story. And I used these five words. And he went through sin, grace, cross, faith, repentance. And he was like, we got to have everyone in the church train. we got to know all this stuff. And I was like, awesome. Dale, meet Trent. So, you know, right? so he was just all excited about what God was doing and what he had already done. And what we want to do today is just help you understand um, another tool to be able to share your faith. I'm sure some of you have before maybe used the uh, four spiritual laws put out by Campus Crusade or Crew. 
maybe the steps to peace with God, which is kind of a um, Billy Graham evangelistic um, presentation, or maybe you did evangelism explosion or something like that, and you're um, trained in that regard. Maybe you know the Romans Road or some other method of sharing your faith. And all those are great. I'd commend them to you. We're just going to give you another one today. And maybe if you could just use one or two or three of these five words, it'll just move conversations in a more gospel-oriented way. So let's, uh, let's review these and see what we learn. The first one is sin. Sin. We have sin, grace, cross, faith, and repentance. Read the definition with me, will you, together? Personal rebellion against God, your Creator, that causes guilt before Him. All right, let's be honest. This is the most offensive part of the gospel presentation. If you get through this first section without the person saying, thank you very much, I'll take my tray and go somewhere else. If you get through this first part of the presentation, um, I'm not going to say everything else is easy, but, but this is really the hard part of helping people to understand their fundamental problem. And according to what the Bible tells us, the fundamental problem in the world, the reason why the world is broken and the reason why we internally are either guilty or we have... We know that we've done things that are wrong is because of the problem of sin. If you needed one verse in all the Bible to memorize, to to summarize this concept, it's Romans 3.23. Very simple. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Meaning there is not a single person on the planet who's ever lived a perfectly righteous life. And seriously, everybody on on the planet knows that. I mean, if they don't, or if they deny it, you can just start walking through the Ten Commandments and saying, look, surely you've, you've broken one of these Ten Commandments, right? I mean, have you ever lied? And if they say no, you're like, dude, you just lied right there, right? So, so it's over, right? Right now, I got you, okay? You can go through the list, right? You ever, you know, um, coveted, committed adultery, you ever, um, swore, said something you shouldn't have, you lied, you know, all those things. You can go through and you can show people, look, we, we know that we're sinners. See, the problem is that most people, they don't deny that they're a sinner. What they do is they think that they're not as bad as a sinner as someone else that they know, right? And so they sort of rank themselves in relationship to other people in regards to their sin versus their own. And the point that you need to get across in this very first word of sin is that we have all violated God's law, that he is the creator and has established what is right and wrong. I mean, someone somewhere had to establish that lying is wrong. Who did that? Well, God did that. And the violation of his law in any way is sin. And if God is holy and we're sinners, then that's an issue. And you've probably heard me summarize it this way before, that God is holy, we are not, and that's a problem. An eternal problem. What's more, you could also press into this thing that the fact is is that we feel guilty over things that we've done. The fact that we even feel this guilt is very clear evidence that there is a holy God, a righteous standard, and some level of requirement of personal obedience. So sin is our personal rebellion against God. It's our desire to be self-autonomous. But it's even more than that. It is that the Bible tells us that even the very reality of our heart is affected by the presence of sin. So it's not just the things that we do. The problem is fundamental to who we are. The issue with our sin is our desire to run our own lives, to get God off of our back, to have him not tell us what we should do or should not do. And this heart-based rebellion that results in physical and mental and emotional acts that we do 
It's what the Bible calls sin. Sin is the problem that the gospel addresses. That's where we we have to start. You cannot share the gospel without identifying the problem of sin. You, You could start with saying God loves you, and then he has a wonderful plan for your life, and that's true, but the issue is you've really messed up the plan. <laughs> and let me tell you, although this can be initially somewhat offensive, the fact is is that people know this. They, they know that they've messed up. They know that they've not been perfectly obedient. So sin, personal rebellion against God, your creator that causes guilt before him. Here's the second word. It's the word grace. Let's read this definition together. A free and undeserved gift given at the cost of someone for the joy of the recipient. Now, I would argue that probably most people know about the word grace, but from a biblical standpoint, we need to elevate their understanding. They may even know the song Amazing Grace. And you could use that, but they need to understand that Grace, from a biblical standpoint, is the way that a holy God has treated undeserving sinners. So it's God's orientation towards us. So you could define grace as this. Grace is unmerited favor. It's undeserved kindness. I've often used the very familiar verse, John 3.16. It just it, it, it smacks of grace. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So the idea is that God, although He is holy and although we are sinful, gives grace. The bad news of our sin, and you've got to establish the bad news, is eclipsed with the beauty of God's undeserved kindness. So it is the love of God that motivates Him to offer the grace of salvation through His Son. The beauty of grace is the fact that God is the one who offers this redemption, and it is completely undeserved, it's infinitely costly to God, and creates eternal joy for those who receive it. So it is that there are sinful human beings, and God mercifully offers them forgiveness through His Son. Again, John Newton just said it very well in Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, what, wretch like me... I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That is grace. It's undeserved favor. So we start with the problem, talk about God's undeserving favor upon us. And third, we come to the word cross. Let's read this definition together. Jesus died on the cross for our sin and in our place so we can be forgiven. So we're talking about the cross, but we're really talking about more than the cross. What we're talking about in this moment is not the physical cross per se. We're talking more about the idea of substitutionary atonement. But we didn't want to put that on the card, right? You don't want to have um, something like, hey, I need to talk to you today about vicarious, substitutionary, propitiatory atonement for your sin. That just Those big theological words, they, they serve to distance people from the core truths. Now, granted, all those words are important, but the fact of the matter is what the cross is about, it is about... Jesus taking my place. It is that Jesus, and here's how I've described it before, absorbs my punishment. That Jesus takes on my penalty. So if you're here today, you've not really ever understood this, essentially it means this, that you're a sinner and you deserve judgment from a holy God and God extends grace by offering His Son to take your place of punishment. He takes 
your judgment. If you get the problem of sin in the right place, the cross then fits perfectly. This is the way in which we are forgiven. It is that God takes the death of Jesus and He remedies our sinful condition by taking our penalty and applying it to Jesus. A great text in this regard is Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Listen to what it says. But you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So God takes our judgment and He applies it to Christ. But listen, you cannot stop there because that is not the full story. The beauty of grace in the cross and the amazing reality of the atonement is that God takes our penalty and He pours it out on Christ, but you've got to come back because there's another part of what the atonement is. He not only takes Christ's death and applies it to me, but then in a miracle of undeserved favor, He takes Christ's righteousness and then gives it to me and applies it to my account, such that God not only declares me forgiven, but He also declares me absolutely perfectly righteous, even though God and I and my family and everyone in the world knows that I'm not really righteous. This is the amazing reality of God's grace. This is the overwhelming beauty of what happens, that God in his infinite grace and wonderful mercy applies Jesus' death to our account and not only wipes us clean of all of our sin, but also declares us to be his children and in this divine exchange gives us a righteousness that we could have never earned that we didn't deserve, and is all because of His grace. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God and applies His righteousness to our account. So, sin, grace, cross. Next, we have the word faith. Faith. Read the definition with me. Personal belief and trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior who takes our sins and gives us new life in Him. Here's where the person moves from death to life. When they put their faith in Jesus. So what I just talked about, the divine exchange that happens between Christ's death being applied to my account and then... Jesus' righteousness being then given to me, this is what the Bible says happens for those who put their faith in Jesus. So faith and trust and belief, they're all really words that essentially mean the same thing. And the idea is that you're putting your hope in what God has promised that he will do. So essentially, you become a Christian, and that could happen today, If you hear these words and say, I believe that, and I'm going to bank my life on that, I'm going to put my faith in what God's Word has said, that if I confess with my mouth, this is Romans 10, and believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, then I will be saved. The Bible says, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So what happens here is that we're calling someone to realize that they cannot save themselves, that only Jesus can save them, and the saving moment comes when the person says, I put my faith, I believe in Jesus. 
Ephesians 2 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is why followers of Jesus sing and they rejoice because they realize everything they have is all because of Jesus and there's nothing they could have done to merit or earn or create this beautiful grace gift that God has given So we have sin, grace, cross, faith. Here's the last one, repentance. And I'm so glad that we have this word. It's very important. Read the definition with me. Despairing over the insufficiency of yourself and in brokenness over your sin, turning to God for rescue. What repentance is, is essentially, is you're walking a particular direction and because you've now heard that you're a sinner, and you've heard that you need to trust Christ, you put your faith in Him, and you turn. You are walking one direction, ruling your own life, and essentially the moment of conversion comes when you say, I am turning to Christ. And really, faith and repentance are just two sides of the same coin. A faith is where I put my trust in, and repentance, also a gift that comes from God, is where my mind has now been changed. What changes? Well, fundamentally, everything changes. It's change in regards to what you live for, what you think about yourself, what you think about sin, what's really important, who you're going to obey. It means that now there's a new master in control of your life and that you have transferred your allegiance from yourself to Jesus. That in effect, when you come to faith in Christ, you are saying, now I am coming to have Jesus control all of my life. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect for the rest of your life, of course not, but it does mean that the fundamental reality of Jesus as your Lord and Savior has now taken control over you. I don't believe that repentance is a secondary work. Repentance is essential to conversion. I mean, Jesus talked about repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter, in his sermon in Acts 3, said, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, we'll see the fruits of repentance if the person is real. You might not see all those fruits immediately, but there's still an important reality that we need to call people to, not only to believe, but also to turn, both in their belief and in their faith. Those are things that God, in His grace, creates in the heart, and then we respond to. I've had it before when I've led someone to Christ, I've said something like this. Now, when you come to faith in Christ, when you put your trust in Him, it means that you're turning from your old lifestyle and you're, 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 there's going to be a change in you. Now, you don't even know all the ways that you're going to change, but I'm telling you, over the next days and weeks, if this thing is real and Jesus is really alive in your heart, there will be things that you'll look at and go, you know what, this is part of my old life. I don't want to do this anymore. I need to find different things. And when God, by His Spirit, speaks to you about those things... Obey those and follow those. Those are good. That's good fruit. I don't give someone a list. Here's like ten things that you need to repent from. I let the Spirit of God take care of that. You know, it's been amazing. One time I had someone from the faith in Christ. They came back a week later and said, "Yeah, check this out. I like this new relationship with Jesus thing is is really kind of messing up some things." I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well, I'm feeling like kind of like bad and awkward with the friends I'm hanging around." Like, these, these folks don't even live for the same thing anymore. And I'm thinking, when you come to Jesus, maybe you need to find some different friends. And I'm like, yeah, that'd be a good idea. And so he's like, I think I need to find some friends. Think I can find some friends at church? I'm like, yeah, I think you probably could. Yeah, it would be a good idea find some friends at church. He's like, you know what I'm also finding? I'm finding, like, the places that I go and the things that I do, like, on the weekends. Like, I just I feel really even, like, worse about doing them. And I don't want to do those things anymore. So should, like, following Jesus affect, like, where I hang out and where I go and the things that I do? And I'm like... 
yeah, pretty much. He's like, so I think I need to find like different places to go and different like things to do. I'm like, that sounds good. The church got anything to do with that? My dad does a little bit. And then he said, so I'm also thinking that I got all these, like this music that I'm listening to, just not helpful. It's like dragging me down and I think I need to find some different music to listen to. Would that be a good thing to do? I'm like, yeah, pretty much. That'd be good. So I'm just thinking, I'm watching this guy just bear the fruits of repentance. The point is, is you set the person up to realize that change is going to take place in regards to their conversion, and repentance needs to be a vital part of what it means to come to faith in Jesus. When you receive Christ, you receive him as Savior, but you also receive him as Lord. It doesn't mean that he's Lord of everything instantaneously in all the ways that he will be in the future, but it does mean that fundamentally you're deciding, look, I now belong to Jesus and I'm going to serve and follow him. So sin, grace, cross, faith, repentance. These are, this is a great way to summarize the gospel. And I would challenge you, encourage you, exhort you that when God opens the door, open your mouth and start. Sin, grace, cross, faith, repentance. And just see if the Lord would give you the freedom and the opportunity to be able to use those five words or maybe just one of them to explain a part of the gospel. And even if you just get a little part of the gospel and realize that it could be just another part of the process where God is opening that door and there'll be opportunities that will come in the future. Finally, let me encourage you that I think one of the most powerful means of sharing the gospel is your own story. I'd encourage you to think about when you engage someone in spiritual conversations, these five words are wonderful and helpful. But along with that, there is something really powerful about your own story. You know, we live in a culture that, for the most part, people, they're not all that excited about religion. But spirituality is uh, fairly in vogue. And, you know, we're supposed to live in a culture that's full of tolerance. Whether or not that's true or not is debatable. The fact is, is that you can share your story of what's happened to you and People will listen. It's your story. I mean, they're not gonna, how are they going to argue with your story, right? Especially if your story is something that they've been able to see live out in the context of your interactions with them. Or even if not, it's just a great context for them to understand not only the, the content of the gospel, but then also how the gospel really works. About 15 years ago, my wife and I took some training with um, navigators we were doing some discipleship material, and as a part of that training, we were instructed to write out our story, our conversion story, um, on paper, and then share it with somebody who we didn't know in the group. And then they critiqued it. And I remember writing out my story, and you know, I don't have, you know, a, God saved me from a life of crime. I mean, I was five years old, you know, I'm like, what, stealing cookies? You know, I mean, what's that about, you know? What? So I have one of those stories, I was raised in a wonderful Christian home. And yet I had to get clarity on how to be able to share that story in a way that helped people understand that even though I was raised in a Christian home, even though I'd gone to church all my life, there came a point in time when I really understood what the Bible was all about. And that was that I was a sinner and that God was holy, and that I needed to do something about my sin. And it was a particular message on the penalty of my sin that God opened my eyes, that even growing up in a Christian home, the fact of the matter was is I needed to make a personal decision and, put, and place my trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And that decision to receive Christ has radically changed my life. 
It's changed everything about me from what I desire, what I long for, what I love. It's changed every aspect of who I am. So my conversion is not just about what God saved me from. It's also about the way in which he has formed and shaped me. It's not only about my eternal destiny. It's about the reality of how I live every single day. And understanding that story and being able to tell it succinctly, clearly, and quickly has been incredibly helpful. So you get two assignments from the sermon today. I don't often give you assignments, but you're going to get one this week. So on the back of this card, there are some blanks. And what we did at our last Fresh Encounter service on our prayer time last Sunday night is we, we wrote down some names of people and then prayed for them. And I want and would encourage every single one of you to do this. As you look on this card, there are some people in your life who my guess is you'd long for them to come to faith in Christ. Some of you are here in the room today, and the fact of the matter is, is your name might be on someone else's card. And uh, it's really great that you're here. It's probably an answer to someone's prayer. And there'd be nothing greater than today you come into faith and putting your trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. So my assignment first is for you to just take this card and begin listing some names. You may be here, and the reality is you're a follower of Jesus, but that those blanks are pretty empty. And it may be just that the first step for you is to say, you know what, i gotta, I got to get outside of my normal um, Christian circle of relationships. i got to find ways to build relationships with lost people. i got to get where lost people are. Take some risky steps. The second assignment is this. As I would encourage you, if I could require it, I would, but I won't. Um, I'd encourage you to take some time this week and to be able to write out the story of the time in which you came to faith in Christ. What were you like before? What happened in your conversion? And how has that made a difference in your life? If you're in a small group, I think, and you're a small group leader, here would be a great assignment. Have every single person in your small group write out their testimony on one page and then come back over the subsequent weeks, share that story with the group. you learn a lot about each other, how you came to faith in Christ, and then also help that person. Give them some refinement pointers or some tips about here's the way you can make this a little clearer here's a way to be able to make that presentation um, as it relates to your own story even more poignant and by working on this story of what it is that god has done in your life you'll be surprised that god will give you opportunity and when that comes you are ready to go that you've got five words ready to share you've got words like sin and grace and cross and faith and repentance that you could share the gospel with somebody but you also have your story you engage people in spiritual conversations helping them to see that you really care trying to get below the surface of their life and at the end of the day you're asking the lord god would you open a door would you open my mouth and would you open their heart and in so doing we resurrect this gospel bringing it back to the way that it used to be when we were so passionate so fired up about what it means to be a child of God who have had their sins forgiven and been given the righteousness of Christ. So, church, we're to live the gospel, we're to, we're to apply the gospel, we're to share the gospel. God, would you open a door? Would you open my mouth? Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to empower us as we go this week. These are words that I'm sure many of us are familiar with. Words that um, have the ability and the power to change someone's life. And Lord, I pray that you would make us effective communicators, even if it's just a short little word about what the gospel really is. Help us to be known as the kind of people who believe this and live it, and then give us, Lord, the boldness to share it. 
Would you help us to be the kind of people that when crisis comes, that people are inclined to come to us? And then, Lord, would you help us to know how to even sort of create the crisis? When people are in dialogue about any number of things, help us to know how to turn that just a bit and to engage people in spiritual conversations so that we might have an opportunity to share the wonderful message of the good news of the gospel. So, Lord, empower us, help us, give us courage, open our mouth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There'll be some folks up here afterwards. If um, you have some questions about anything I talked about today, they'd love to talk with you about those things. Also, if you need prayer for something going on in your life, they're here to be able to bless you and pray for you today, okay? I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming. God bless you.